Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Aersdale. This week, it is Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. A rare, unprecedented Tuesday episode to accommodate Thursday's holiday. So, episode 12, we welcome Marcos Preton. He is the California opinion editor for McClatchy, headquartered right here in beautiful Sacramento, California. Many of you in all likelihood have read Marcos, seen him on Twitter, seen him on TV or heard him on other shows. He has seen and written and thought so much about California over the last three plus decades. And it's a real thrill to talk to him for what is California. Before we get started, just a quick check in. Hope you're all doing well. It's Thanksgiving week. Do you have any plans? Are you going anywhere? Are you traveling? Gas is only about $9 per gallon. So... I hope maybe you have fueled up maybe a horse, a mule. Um, I don't know. I'm going to stay home, lay low. I think I'll be watching The Last Waltz, which is my favorite Thanksgiving movie shot at the Winterland Ballroom. RIP Winterland Ballroom. The band, their final concert, Thanksgiving Day 1976 uh, with a cast of thousands. And um, I love that movie. Really one of my favorite films. And uh, I watch it every Thanksgiving and blast it. It's a lot of fun. So uh, I'll be doing that on Thursday and I will not be doing this. In my dreams, I envision you and your family in the covered wagon with the horse, kind of like, you know, uh, just trotting past the $9 per gallon gas stations, waving at those folks. So long suckers. And you are listening to this episode on the wagon on its Bluetooth because the wagons have Bluetooth. They have semiconductors. They just don't have gas. And the whole family is gathered around listening to what is California. That's kind of how I envision this going. Um, I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, happy Thanksgiving once again. Anyway, Marcos Breton is the guest this week. It is such a thrill to talk to Marcos. I've been reading Marcos for a very long time. In fact, let me tell you a little story. About 20 years ago, uh, I had a correspondence with Marcos. I didn't actually talk to him about this when we were doing our, our, our chat for this show, but I... Uh, sent him an email because he had written something about the Giants. Now I'm a big Giants fan, San Francisco Giants. And he had written something at that time about the Giants being cursed. And you got to keep in mind, like this is right around the time that Barry Bonds was, you know, jacking 65, 70 homers a year. I think he actually broke the record the year that I got in touch with Marcos. I was so mad with this column that Marcos wrote, just kind of dragging the Giants. And I was talking about all the other teams in the major leagues that hadn't won championships in years and how the Giants were really no different from them. And he wrote back... I appreciate your note. Thank you very much. That was it. I thought, man, he must get so many pieces of angry mail every day via email, snail mail, whatever. This is 20 years ago, Chris. Now it's all email and, of course, social media DMs and ads. Um, there's so many people Marcos must have to mute, but you know, I was one of them years and years and years ago. And he was so gracious though. He got back to me and I really appreciated that. And I would bet that that's the kind of relationship that a lot of folks have with Marcos Preton, uh, and his work over the years. It's thought provoking, it's challenging. Um, it's infuriating sometimes, but it's also reassuring to know that his voice is there. His perspective is there. He is a steadfast observer of everything that happens in this city in Sacramento. And now as a California opinion editor, for McClatchy across the state. He is such a shrewd and sharp observer of political and social and cultural developments around California. And I wanted to talk to him about those, especially as he has observed them evolve over the last three decades plus in his time at the Sacramento Bee. 
One thing you'll notice right from the beginning of the conversation, Marcos is referring to summer. And uh, this episode was indeed taped during the summer. It's been kind of a puzzle trying to figure out how to roll out the episodes of What is California since we launched in September. So I really appreciate Marcos's patience and I really appreciate you and your forbearance and uh, an episode that starts with discussing the summer, but the circumstances and the context of the summer actually is still relevant year round. It doesn't really matter. You'll know what I mean when you hear Marcos talking about climate and climate change. The conversation goes from there into more kind of, you know, evergreen topics. So thank you for understanding in advance. As always, if you'd like to reach out, I would love to hear from you. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at whatcalifornia. And if you are interested in subscribing to the free Substack newsletter. You can get that at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a new episode in your inbox every Thursday, usually non-holiday weeks, and it will get you a fresh round of weekend links, cool stories from around California in your inbox every Friday. And that will come out this Friday as scheduled. So without further ado, here is me with Marcos Breton on What is California? Enjoy. Marcus Breton, welcome to What is California? How are you doing? I am well. Um, summertime has always been a joyful thing for me. It, it now comes with worries and concerns about wildfires and scorching heat and, you know, potential power outages. And it, so now, now summertime is a reminder of, to me that we're living climate change in California and uh, I never used to think like that. So you have kind of a dual factor there. Like you're thinking about that, obviously, as a Californian, as someone residing in it right now. But you're also the California opinion editor for McClatchy and uh, headquartered the Sacramento Bee. How do you reconcile those things? And how now that it's actually you know affecting you personally, how are you kind of translating that to the work you do for McClatchy and the Bee? Well, I have to admit that... Um, Growing up, and then in college, and then as a young adult, and then as a middle-aged adult, and now as one, um, you know, about eighteen months removed from my sixtieth birthday, um, I didn't really spend much time thinking about our environment, or our climate, until the last few years, and particularly last summer. So I'm sitting in my backyard right now, and last summer. We couldn't come outside uh, because the air wasn't just unhealthy. There were a couple of days where the air quality was hazardous. I never thought I'd ever see that in my life. I never thought that my lawn furniture in Sacramento would be covered with ash from fires hundreds of miles away, fires that are so hot and so immense that they dropped ash across a huge swath of California. So those experiences were. Uh, humbling for me. And so how does it play out in opinion journalism? We believe that it's our job to hold our elected officials accountable now for every decision they make with respect to building homes, building infrastructure, that every decision has to be made with the climate in mind. And we talk a great game about being against sprawl where I live, but you know, we have the city of Folsom nearby, and they're in the process of building 11,000 new homes in this climate 
in this drought without uh, a substantial guarantee of where the water is going to come from to serve those people. So I feel like I'm late to the party individually of, of being conscious of this, but better late than never. And um, and so so we've, in the last several weeks, we've written a great deal about issues related to the power grid, issues related to our reliance on fossil fuels to keep the lights on in California. And I'm overseeing the writing and I'm editing and I'm, I'm involved in the uh, conceptualizing of the work. But uh, I have to admit that if I roll back the clock to uh, me five years ago, even as recently as five years ago, even though I'm admitting my ignorance because five years ago, climate change was real. It just wasn't real to me. Uh, and so uh, it is. But we, I think we have to, as opinion journalists, we have to be mindful. We can't Particularly in uh, in the age that we're living in now, I don't think it works when we are lecturing people from an ivory tower. And so it used to be, it seemed to me that editorial boards would react, uh, and they would they would they would write editorials and opinions that were really kind of scolding. And I don't think that that works. I think that you have to make it real for people. I think that people have to. As it happened to me, I think people have to have that moment when they realize that, okay, this isn't theoretical anymore. This is really happening, and we're living it. It becomes personal, right? It becomes personal because, I mean, I'm a a native Californian, and except for one year of living in Southern California, I've lived in Northern California my whole life. And so, so it is personal because this is, this is our home and, and, and there's a reason that we live here, and uh, I have children, and and I'm I'm now concerned about the world that they're going to inhabit when I'm gone, uh, and so I it's my hope that um, someday my children sort of look back on what we were writing about in 2021, and at least have the satisfaction of feeling that we were writing about things that were important. Where were you born in California? Where were you raised? And how and when did you arrive in Sacramento? So I grew up in San Jose when it was a very different place. I grew up in San Jose in the in the seventies, and and I can remember as a teenager about. So I was born in nineteen sixty two. So like say nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty, in my Ford Pinto, my cream colored Ford Pinto, which was my first car, driving up near Cupertino and seeing this big building with like a half bitten apple with different multicolors and thinking, I wonder what that is. You know, the infrastructure for Silicon Valley was just taking shape when I was um, uh, graduating from high school. Uh, So I grew up in San Jose when there was still an edge of town. And when my parents had friends who quote, lived out in the country, unquote, and we would pile in the station wagon and drive. And uh, friends of ours had an orchard with apricots, and and uh, uh, and it just seemed like it seemed like it was so far away at that point from from our home and near downtown San Jose. And now that edge of town is gone. It's completely gone. It's all houses and subdivisions. I have a friend who lives in a home very near where I went to community college. And at that time, it was just green hills. You know, I, I got into journalism purely by accident. And and I arrived in Sacramento in one of the first waves of Bay Area transplants to Sacramento for people who were seeking to be able to buy their first home, which is what we did. 
So I moved here at the end of 1989, which doesn't seem that long ago to me, but actually really was. I actually went back through some of your clips and I found what I believe is the first article you ever wrote for the B. It was about merchants in Midtown Sacramento opposing a planned move into the neighborhood by a drug care facility. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. And, and it didn't, it didn't even occur to me then that uh, that what a big thing NIMBYism was going to become. Uh, and so when I wrote that story, I can guarantee you that concept never occurred to me. And obviously, I was a, I was a brand new reporter when I began. Uh, the story probably was not very well written, uh, but, but that's we all have to start somewhere. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I was, I was late 20s. I had only been to Sacramento once before we moved here. I had been to Sutter's Fort um, on a day trip, and that was it. Uh, and so when I came to interview, it just wasn't, it wasn't a place uh, uh, that I was thinking about. And when we got, my wife and I got hired at the B at the same time. And, and I thought it would be two years, and, and here it is 31 years later. You know, one of the quotes in that story I thought that was fascinating was from the director of the Midtown Business Association, and he said, quote, the clientele we're trying to attract in this area would be intimidated by the clientele that goes to the Aquarian effort. That was what the, um, the drug treatment facility was called. And it, the quote continues, we don't oppose the Aquarian effort itself. It's just that this area already has such a proliferation of social service agencies. Yes. Does that sound familiar, Marcos? That's what everybody says. They've been saying that for 31 years now, 32 years. That's whatever. You know, you give me an idea. I need to go back and look at that piece and, and uh, write about it in today's context, because at that time, I probably I probably agreed with um, even though, you know, uh, I wasn't supposed to. I probably would have agreed with what the merchants were saying. But I think we I think we have a greater appreciation in California now of how we ourselves are creating not just issues for our climate, but um, we're helping feed homelessness by opposing housing units that would give people a chance to live in a safe, clean place and take a breath and hopefully ascend to the middle class. We're just dead set against that. In, in many in many cities in, in California. Yeah, you have written pretty extensively about the homelessness crisis in Sacramento over the years. What most recently has struck you about the homelessness crisis in Sacramento and either its intractability or any prospects for possibly solving it? What has struck me is being more introspective about the way we, and when I say we, we in the in the print media covered homelessness, which is, I would argue, not very well. And I include myself. A decade ago, I was writing a lot about the, the negative aspects, the health aspects of homelessness and its impact on downtown merchants and, and communities. And I think my thinking has evolved uh, to, this is one of the great issues of our time. And that simply complaining about the mess, the smell, the inconvenience, it, it, it be, sort of just being stuck in that spot has got us where we are now in many respects. But at the same time, I don't think that we in the media do ourselves or our readers or the homeless any favors by swinging so far the other way to where the, the issue is couched as um, 
are hard luck stories or sob stories. It's interesting you asked me the question because I was just having a discussion with my staff this morning about I was at a city-sanctioned homeless camp on Wednesday with uh, one of our brilliant photographers. And we were talking to a gentleman who's got a whole range of, by his own admission, a whole range of emotional issues that he's trying to work through. And he's got a small child and a wife. He and his wife are both disabled as it is right now, unable to work, unable to create a living for themselves. They're living in this place with no running water. To their telling, the place is full of people who were recently incarcerated and are, are not. And I did a big cover story that was on the front page of the paper about this little uh, secluded business park where at this point, like over 100 vehicles are parked and people are living in them. And they just had a homicide at this place. So what I was saying to my, my teammates, my staff, is that um, I don't feel that I, – I feel like we, we end up writing a lot of stories about process, about uh, the approval and siding of homeless camps, which is difficult enough given the nimbyism that exists in our, in our society. But, but beyond that, I don't, I don't think that we've really gotten our arms around the fact that simply creating safe – ground for people to camp on that's just the beginning because then at some point you're going to want to have these folks kind of transition into housing and you are talking about people who were recently incarcerated who committed very serious crimes uh, or who have really gigantic mental health challenges or substance abuse challenges or you know what all of the above so what's happened? The advocates, in my mind, don't really want to have that conversation uh, because that conversation is a lot more complex, uh, and and uh, and it's only been in the last couple of years where I've started to, in the last couple of months, where I've started to wonder: Is this problem fixable? I'm not going to say no right now because, truthfully, I don't know. But I, I had never thought of it in those terms. And, and for years, we've written stories about the latest plan to end homelessness. And there's this buy-in, this psychological and emotional buy-in that people uh, uh, have to accept that think that, that, that such a concept is even possible. I don't know that it is. Because it's not just about creating space for them to live. It's, it's, it's about creating the ability for them to be able to function to where they won't end up right back on the streets. Um, and that problem is, in many respects, beyond the capabilities of a municipal government like Sacramento or Los Angeles or San Diego or Anaheim. Uh, so I'm not a pessimist. I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. But I think that, um, at least for me and, and for the people who work with me, uh, I think we need to spend a lot more time um, emphasizing what's real so people really get an understanding of what we're talking about and we need to be able to talk about it that these aren't the Joads uh, who are out there living there are some people who are economically displaced there's no question about it but there are also a lot of people who are there because they have no place to go uh, and they've been incarcerated so what what do we do with them 
How do we deal with that? I don't know. So is it a problem that the state has to deal with at the state level, the state government here in Sacramento? I, the state government and the federal government. I mean, we, we have a humanitarian crisis uh, in our midst, and, and it's only getting worse. I feel for people who are elected officials right now trying to deal with this because it involves issues that require serious professional help from uh, mental health providers, from social workers. And, you know, we, we, we end up beating, beating up, and I've participated in it, I, I admit it, beating up our local elected officials as the situation proliferates in Sacramento. And I see an awful lot of younger people, particularly younger people who are going to be vying for elected uh, seats on the, on the Sacramento City Council, talking about homelessness uh, on Twitter as if an uh, outrage in a tweet is the answer when it's not. So I, I, uh, I think the reckoning is here for us. Uh, and it's, compassion isn't enough. I mean, this is, this is a major humanitarian crisis right in our streets and it's only getting worse and i am grasping for ways that our 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 community can deal with it you've covered a lot of the state you've covered a lot of different beats you've covered a lot of different people and you've seen three decades more than three decades of the california story and the work that you've done for the sacramento Bee alone so i'm kind of curious who are some of the most compelling people and stories that you've encountered during that time that kind of speak to what California is? Well, I covered the O.J. Simpson trial. I wasn't the everyday writer. My colleague, Laura, former colleague, Laura Mikoy was, because back when the Bee had an L.A. bureau. Uh, that thing lasted so long that uh, Laura had a couple of vacation cycles, and so I would go down and cover the trial. So I feel like I was present at the dawn of our celebrity culture. Uh, of our 24-hour news cycle culture, uh, and so, and at the dawn of sort of the the foreshadowing of Black Lives Matter and our sense of justice, and it, I think it took those of us who are not black a long time to understand why black people would cheer for OJ, uh, even though I mean history has shown proved him to be a very poor. Um, role model uh, of justice or anything else, I, I feel like I understand that now. I, I mean, the way that the the polarization in that ish, in that verdict, um, I, I think, was a foreshadowing for the reckoning that we're going through now um, because of George Floyd. I think that uh, former Governor Pete Wilson was a foreshadowing for Trumpism. Why do you say that? Because he was, his political fortunes were flagging and he weaponized prejudice against Mexican people and used it as a weapon against a very weak opponent, admittedly, uh, Jerry Brown's younger sister, who was just an inept candidate, a, a liberal in an empty suit. And Wilson and, and all the people around him, some of whom I've remained friendly with over the years, was so cynical. Uh, in in jumping on a proposition that was ultimately uh, shot down in the courts and wouldn't have really changed the arc of immigration to our country 
but it worked for him. You're referring to Proposition 187, right? Proposition 187. And I, I think that was a watershed moment in our state. And I think that Wilson, um, he, whether he admits it or not, and he doesn't, precipitated the demise of the Republican Party in California, which would have happened anyway, but he just he he just helped a great deal. And he inspired a couple of generations of advocates who've gone into public service, public health, public policy. And uh, I think that that those were watershed moments. I think that the Rodney King case was one of the first more recent shots across the bow that that resulted in um, the, the movement that you're seeing now to try to push back against police forces as occupying armies uh, in communities. And I, I feel like I was there for all of those things. So I see, you know, Wilson, I see OJ, uh, I see you know, the whole issue of, of Black Lives Matter as as issues that have continued to reverberate in our state, and the massive explosion of wealth generated in the in the place where I grew up has you know created devices that have uh, made our lives better. But it's for those of us who can afford the luxury. The the flip side of that was the massive inequality and the erosion of rights for workers uh, and the flattening of people's take-home pay. Uh, I think all of these issues have contributed to making California a fascinating place to write about, but an unequal place to live. I feel like that's been the arc of my career. What do you think people outside California most misunderstand about our state? I mean, I think people most misunderstand that places like Sacramento are closer to the essence of California than Los Angeles uh, uh, or San Francisco. Now, San Francisco, by virtue of uh, its economic might, has put its oversized footprint on our politics. And we're in a cycle right now where our political leaders, for the most part, were born and bred uh, in the Bay Area. And, and so if you, if you have Bay Area money and if you can get Bay Area votes, there's a very good chance that you're going to win statewide election. And places like LA and Sacramento are, are are lagging far behind in our ability to to move that needle. Uh, I think history will decide whether uh, this current generation of Bay Area politicians, uh, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, um, Nancy Pelosi, uh, uh, who, who knows how history is going to view them, uh, and particularly in the case of of uh, Newsom and and Harris, they still have many chapters uh, to go. Uh, and so I'm now, particularly in my job, I'm trying to understand those two personalities far better than I tried when I was the, when I was the news columnist for the Sacramento Bee. And what have you found? I, I'm a, I, I don't even pretend to, um, to understand Governor Newsom. He's a very elusive character to me. And the only major piece that I've written about him, I wrote during the primary, uh, and it was the, the the title was "The Privileged Candidate." Why do we let Gavin Newsom get away with it? And I didn't do any great reporting to to write this column. I just wrote about the things that were in the public domain and wrote about how he has the ability to have uh, had you know, many you know high profile platforms uh, and, and transgressions and survive them where others wouldn't. So I don't even pretend to really understand him yet. And I do think Kamala Harris is, is a significant 
character in our, our story right now, our California story. And it, she certainly has made the most of uh, being raised by essentially a single mom uh, in the East Bay. And that, that's an amazing story. And she's ascended to, to uh, levels that, you know, no one from her background ever has before. But it's still a, it's still a story that, that I don't even pretend to have my arms around yet. But I'm going to spend the, this part of my career doing that. But symbolically, I guess, and practically, what do you think it means to have a Californian in the White House as vice president, considering it's only been a handful of Californians who've ever risen to the executive branch from our state, right? Right. And uh, usually they were Republican before, which is the funny part is they were, you know, they were Republican before we were a Republican state. I can remember when we were a Republican state. I can um, too. <laughs> and the, the first time I voted, the, the first time I was old enough to vote in an election was 1982. And I, I for governor, I voted um, uh, for Mayor Bradley from Los Angeles, Tom Bradley. And for state, for U.S. Senator, I voted for Jerry Brown. And they both lost. And they both lost. They both, they, they lost to George Duke Machen and Pete Wilson. Uh, and those two gentlemen are two people who I do not remember fondly. Uh, because when they were governors in our state, um, we, we lost our minds on the whole get tough on crime kick, you know, addiction that we were on and gang task forces. And, and that's when LAPD and other police departments became militarized and, you know, three strikes and all those things that have been repudiated now. Uh, and oftentimes ensnared people whose primary crime was that they were poor uh, and dark skin. So we had a moment at that time where we might have gone in a different direction. Who knows? We'll never know. But but we chose to go in that direction. And California is not as progressive as everyone thinks, though. I mean, you no. recently wrote it was after the 2020 election. You wrote a piece about Proposition 16, the outcome of which was anything but progressive, right? That's right. And, you know, I felt badly that I just ran out of time. You know, I felt badly that I didn't, I don't think it would have made any difference. Um, I'm not kidding myself into thinking that if I had published during the campaign, that it would have made any difference. But, you know, the idea of affirmative action, even in our progressive times now, is still repudiated uh, by a majority of our voters, uh, even though they say, you know, they're in favor of the concept, right? I should have clarified Proposition 16 was a ballot measure put to the California voters, which would have repealed Proposition 209, which itself uh, banished affirmative action. Yes. I was a, a working journalist when Prop 209 happened, and I, I felt, and this is just my perspective, I felt that, uh, that 209 was all, all in that same time, 209, 187, three strikes. Uh, I felt like those initiatives were a backlash for a state that was becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. And I've always argued that the flashpoint is when uh, people who are more racially and ethnically diverse ascend to positions either in the workforce or in education that are sought after. And rightly or wrongly, I use myself as an example, even though I am what my friends would describe as a light-skinned Mexican person. Uh, I was raised in an immigrant household, and I was part of a of a generation that really helped fully integrate the Sacramento Bee as a newsroom in the early '90s. And the way we did that was by people 
who were racially and ethically diverse ascending to positions that were sought after. I saw that play out in my in my college years and the friend in my in the in the in the experiences of my friends and people who I knew. And so that's when that's where the problem began when we really weren't a minority anymore and when those opportunities were opening up and so I felt like those were a backlash. There was a backlash and we and we did it through the laws and and clearly we haven't reckoned with that backlash or it's still there and uh, if anything, you know, the George Floyd era has proved how unequal uh, our lives can be, and yet we still resist efforts to um, to tilt those scales more fairly. And and this is where we are. I think California is, you know, as much a populist hotbed on the right. No one gives it credit for that. You've got the entire north part of the state, you know, that wants to secede. You've got some of the most far right. Uh, look at Tom McClintock, you know, the representative. You look at some of these folks in the state Senate and the state assembly here at the state capitol in Sacramento who are anti-vax, who are basically looking at COVID as a gigantic libertarian uh, arch conservative flag waving opportunity. And you're like, well, I thought we were in California. You know, yes, the Democrats have a super majority, but this is textbook Trump populism, right? Well, and I don't have the number in front of me, but Donald Trump got a lot of votes in California in 2020. So uh, it's it's still a part of who we are. It's a, it's certainly a part of the history of our state. You know, the history of people from my ethnic group are not is not as widely known in California as it should be. Mexican American people lost their status, their land, you know, their legacy wealth, um, you know, through court decisions and and battles and and then unfortunately with the help of the mainstream press were demonized for many years and it's only now i think that my industry is coming to terms with the way that we actively participated in marginalizing the largest ethnic group in california and so i approached that that history with my eyes wide open and not angry in the sense that it's all consuming but at least as long as I'm sitting in the chair that I'm in, uh, I want to talk about those things or write about those things honestly, because they're a part of who we are. They're a part of our, our history in California. doesn't mean that you don't love our country. It doesn't mean that you don't love our state. But um, I think real freedom begins with, with truth. That's all, it's all part of who we are. I was really affected this summer when you wrote a piece about the status of the American River Parkway which is really kind of an unsung jewel of California. You've written extensively about the Parkway over the years. You came back to it this year. But maybe for our listeners, can you explain what the American River Parkway is and why Sacramentans, but also all Californians, should care about it? So the American River Parkway is our, it's our jewel of a waterway that cuts right through our city and winds up you know, through some really beautiful country. It's an urban forest, and it has been slowly being decimated, largely by homeless folks who are camping on the parkway and who either accidentally or on purpose set fires that have devastated the parkway. The water near Discovery Park, where a lot of people recreate, where a lot of people can't afford a swimming pool go when it gets terribly hot in Sacramento. The water is polluted now by 
human waste. And, uh, and I feel like I've been banging this. I don't feel I have been banging this drum for almost a decade with very little traction. There's a lot of reasons for that. But I believe one of them is because it does involve homeless people and, and what to do with them. And our politics in Sacramento, both conservative and liberal, are incapable of really taking that issue on in a meaningful way. And so my fear is that we will look back on this time as the time we let the parkway be destroyed slowly. And we weren't up to, we weren't up to the task. We weren't. So, yeah, as I'm sitting here for, reflecting what we've discussed in this, I, I, I certainly am not a pessimistic person. But I, I do think that it's it's my job as an opinion writer to to bring these issues to people's attention. And the hope is that it will spur discussion change. Um, and we're still waiting for that. We're still waiting for the someone to rescue the parkway. My last question for you is the last question I ask everybody. But who is your favorite Californian, past or present? My um, favorite Californian even though he and I had a very fraught relationship while he was alive, and even though I wouldn't have said this name 20 years ago, uh, I have to say my favorite Californian is the late labor leader, uh, Cesar Chavez, because he really came from nowhere. He, he lived in various places, but he lived in my hometown of San Jose and uh, rose out of a very uh, difficult neighborhood and he, in the 1960s, was able to garner national attention for the plight of uh, Mexican-American people. And he stood for justice uh, and for helping the least among us. He certainly was not perfect. He certainly made a lot of mistakes. He certainly, at the end of his life, was not enamored of me um, because of a, a very scathing article that I wrote about him and his union. And there was about a 10 or 15 year period where there were people who were followers of his who were quite down on me. But that changed over time and my perspective changed. And it made me realize that, that uh, the flesh and blood people are a lot more interesting than the myths and the legends. And Cesar Chavez was a person who should not have become a lionized rights icon based on his background. And yet he did. And he inspired a lot of people, myself included, um, to aspire to more uh, in our lives. Um, and I'm a decidedly middle-class Mexican-American person now in my nice backyard with my nice lawn. And But all these things are possible, not just because of the work of Mr. Chavez, but of, of the generation that he represented of immigrant people who came to the state or were in the state. And it was conventional wisdom to tell those folks that, uh, that they, could, they shouldn't hold on to their first language and that they should be ashamed of their families and their parents. And he said no to that. And my own parents said no to that. Uh, and, uh, and so it's only now that I'm older that I realize how much I owe them for that. It took me a long time to get there, and there was a time where I felt quite negatively about him. But uh, he, uh, he really is someone, I think, who um, at his best symbolized our best, uh, and, uh, and I'm grateful to him for that. Marcos Breton, California Opinion Editor for McClatchy, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. 
All right. That was Marcos Breton. Thank you so much to him. Thank you so much to you. So grateful for all of you listening on this holiday week, or if you've had your Thanksgiving already, you're listening to us afterward. I hope it was a great holiday for you. And I hope you are ready for the marathon that is the holiday season ahead. What is California is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Stu Van Airsdale. The music is by Sound Supreme. You can find me on Twitter at WhatCalifornia. You could also subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That gets you a free podcast episode in your inbox every Thursday morning, and it gets you a free roundup of weekend links every Friday morning. You can support What is California on Patreon at patreon.com slash whatiscalifornia. If you'd like to chip in a few shekels to keep the cloud servers running and keep the headquarters cat fed, meow. And you can always email me at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What is California, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. That is a wrap on this week. I will see you next time. Only two episodes remain this season of What is California. I'm very excited to bring this to you in the weeks ahead. Until then, remember, as always, keep your eye on the bear. (laughs) 